Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. It's great to have you along with us today. You know that this is the time of the week when we get to huddle with local journalists and we uh, we trade notes and questions and we work out what happened this week and and figure out what it all means. And you know, we live stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. So if you'll search KOW Public Radio, then you will see what I see, which is uh, GeekWire's contributing editor, Mike Lewis. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you along today. Crosscuts, Eastern Washington reporter, Mai Huang. Good to see you again, Mai. Hello. Thanks for having me. And Kitsap Sun reporter, Josh Farley is in Bremerton. Hey there, Josh. Good to have you on again. Hey, thanks for having me on, Bill. Always a pleasure. Let's uh, let's begin with a, a little COVID update. Uh, it looks like Omicron cases are leveling off in the Puget Sound area. Case rates down 27% in King County over the past week. But my, you are in Yakima. You don't uh, you don't have the leveling off yet over there, do you? No, um, it's actually been rising pretty drastically. Um, yesterday, um, the last couple, there's been a couple of days where we've seen a thousand plus new cases. And to put that in context, during you know previous peak waves in the last two years, you know we saw more like you know two to four hundred cases. So obviously, a huge sharp curve. Um, when you know the Puget Sound was seeing that dramatic increase, we were actually still seeing a decline in cases. So um, we and this has been the pattern during the whole pandemic. We've been you know kind of trending behind the Seattle area probably a few weeks. So my hope is if you guys are leveling off now we'll see we'll see that trend here in a couple of weeks. Right. We've got uh, some of those National Guard members in place and uh, and even in King County we're getting, you know, 4,000 new cases a day. So we are talking about a leveling off, not a uh, not a pandemic is over thing. A couple right. of hours ago, our state opened a new website for ordering free rapid at home COVID test kits. Home tests in particular are a key component of your medical kit at home and something we want you to have on hand before you need them. We also want to lift the burden off of our emergency departments so that care can go to people who really need it. And th- these tests are on top of the four free tests you can get from the federal government now. And, and Mike, you think that, that all this is going to help? I think it's going to help folks who are in specific at-work jobs. You have a whole bunch of people in the trades who don't have the option of working remotely, service industry people who don't have the option of working remotely, delivery people who don't have the option of working remotely. These categories of jobs, I wish there were a way to prioritize tests for them because I think we're all anticipating it's going to be an uneven distribution of tests the way it always works, at least initially. And so it would be nice to see some level of prioritization for the folks who genuinely need to take a test like this before they can even go into work on some days if they're feeling a cold. I mean, we all know that that every time you catch even a cold now, which isn't COVID necessarily a COVID-related cold you don't know what your situation is and whether or not you can even go to work. And so I think that those tests are going to be pretty important uh, for folks, particularly in those categories of work. Well, but since a positive result can cost you work or or even, I suppose, potentially cost you your job uh, or, you know, your kid missing school or or whatever. And all these other reasons people don't want to, you know, don't want to get tracked or, you um, you know, just some of the same things that, that lead people to not get vaccinated or masked up. Do you think, uh, do you, how, what do you think the uptake is going to be like for all these tests? Well, my guess is it's going to be, it depends kind of on where, where you're going to, who is going to be taking the test and what the nature of your employment is. I mean, there are a lot of places that we pay 
I have a business on the side and we pay sick leave in situations like that. So people lose a bit of income, tip related income, but they don't lose all of their income. And so a lot of that is going to depend on what the the way the employer has managed the situation uh, moving forward. Right. Josh, you think more testing will look like more cases? And most likely, I, I think you have to think that it will push things up, particularly with a variant that many infections are asymptomatic. Um, many people may uh, confuse it for a cold or all the reasons that Mike uh, was, was saying earlier. We, we, we probably have an undercount going in amidst already uh, a wave of COVID that the scale of which we've not seen before. Certainly here in Kitsap County, we're at a high of uh, hospitalizations of uh, about, I think there were 68 according to our local health district. So we're seeing far more cases. And while many of them result in mild or even no symptoms at all, um, the, just the, the vast scale is what is, um, what is turning out to be the overwhelming factor here. Mm-hmm. Maya, are you seeing any behavior change? I was saying that uh, we're talking about a leveling off and, and not even really that. Uh, in uh, on the eastern side of the state. But I did see that the director of the UW Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation s- did say today, uh, after the Omicron wave, I'm quoting, COVID-19 will return, but the pandemic will not. New variants will surely emerge, and some may be more severe. The impacts on health, however, will be less because of previous exposure, regularly adapted vaccines, the advent of antivirals, and the knowledge that the vulnerable can protect themselves by using high-quality masks and physical distancing. Do you get the sense that, uh, I don't know, are you picking up on a different behavior or a different psychology about the pandemic in the last uh, few weeks? I think it's it's kind of mixed, um, even with schools. I mean, in, in Yakima, we, um, you know, Yakima County schools have been, or Yakima School District has been in remote learning. They went, a lot of the districts here went in remote learning, but um, the private schools are still in person. So um, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, although, you know, my daughter goes to the local Catholic school here, where, you know, and they're in person, but they've been very, you know, diligent in terms of, you know, making sure that, you know, urging parents to keep their kids at home if, you know, they're sick. So I I still think people are so accustomed to being overly cautious. I don't think we're there yet. I think some people, I think, I think there's definitely a group of people that are like, you know, I'm over this and I'm going to go back to normal. But I think society wise, I don't think we're there yet. I think we've been so used to, you know, being overcautious, wearing masks, you know, distancing. I mean, I mean, even for me, I, I, I almost fall into the, oh, well, you know, I better just stay home for a while and not go out. So um, I think, I think psychologically, it's going to take a while to, to accept that, like, hey, like, we can, live with this. Um, but yeah, I think I think more than anything, that's kind of going to be tougher. Because um, we've been so used to being told to like, to be overcautious and not to, you know, take any, you know, extra steps or, you know, or to take extra steps and doing things. But on the other hand, I, I do think that at home tests do make people a little more comfortable with going out because they can, you know, if they want to, you know, go to like a sporting event or something, um, you know, if that that option's there for them to make sure they're not going to come into a big event with COVID. So, mm-hmm. so I do think, you know, having more tests available do does make people feel a little more at ease with everything. Well, I don't know. I don't know. What's the, what's the next Greek letter <laughs> after Omicron? 
right uh, right know. what's going to be what's going to be next pie where do we go from here um yeah, it's going to be more like just... a pecan pie or more like a mud <laughs> mud pie what's in right. what's inside this pie that's coming i don't know yeah well what's in, what's inside of course the covid pandemic has become so political masks are political vaccines are political one thing i hope that doesn't become political ever is ventilation and i think it's worth like reminding you know reminding the masses as often as possible that going outside we're northwesterners let's get outside when we can uh whatever the variants are and frankly even if it's not a covid variant what about all the other respiratory infectious diseases that we face in life ventilation doesn't have to be super an expensive thing just crack a window i i practically froze my relatives over the holidays <laughs> and, but you know what none of us got a symptomatic illness we uh -huh. made it through the you know this this covid winter and and you know i really hope for the schools especially that they're able to do this you know just open a open a window a bit good uh, from what i've read and from the the epidemiologists that i've talked to there's good science here um, it's a terrible ripple although many schools are afraid to pop windows um, because of the threat of school shootings they're afraid to keep a door open uh, they have to abide by other realities of our society that are that's just really unfortunate but where possible ventilation is a great thing and will continue to serve us well, I think. I, I will say, um, just jumping off on like the outside thing, um, you know, because gyms were closed, um, I have this like running streak. I run a day, mile a day every day for like six years or something. And wow. when the gyms were closed, like I, you know, had to run outside. So I've run in all sorts of weather and yeah, it's, you get used to it. So, and I feel like I also learned how to drink beer outside too in the winter. So, you know, you, you learn all sorts of things for survival. So, yeah. um, and it's not bad. I mean, you're kind of cold at first, but you wear a heavy jacket and a hat and gloves and drink your beer and, you know, and you still have a good time and maybe a fire. It helps. Good on you, Mai. That's all. I mean, <laughs> the mileage, not, not for the beer, but the beer is great too. <laughs> it's a reward for the running. <laughs> Oh, you just reminded me that the, uh, was it the CDC? Some group came out and said that America is too inactive, as you would expect. But there are four states where that's not true. And I think it was Colorado, um, Utah, Vermont, and Washington State, uh, where we, we actually, according to some government body, they said, <laughs> yeah, you guys are good in Washington. You're, you're active. Mine's running an hour, a, a, mile, a, a mile a day. Um, however, this is a good segue, uh, Mike Lewis, because here we're talking about how active we are and how we get outside, uh, and yet Microsoft just uh, just made a huge bet on us. I suppose you could play Call of Duty uh, outside, but this is uh, I'm talking about the biggest acquisition ever for Microsoft and the biggest cash-only deal of all time, $70 billion or so to buy the video game maker Activision Blizzard, which has brought us Candy Crush and World of Warcraft, and of course, Call of Duty. Hunt the enemy yeah. down. Was that Call of Duty or Candy Crush? I'm not. Uh, I don't know. I don't play either game. Mike, I. Uh, what do you think? I'm. I, I'm not surprised that Microsoft buys a game maker again. But why is anything worth seventy billion dollars? Well, it, that's an open question. It actually caused a bit of Microsoft stock to to dip slightly uh, as a result of the purchase. But it makes a tremendous amount of sense for Microsoft. And to your earlier point, uh, so far. 
uh, there is no spread of Omicron in the metaverse. So uh -huh. we're at least safe there. Although certainly that's where all of our previously worried about viruses happened, right? So the I, I think that what's happening here are two things. One, Microsoft has decided, there's a terrific GeekWire story by Todd Bishop on this. Microsoft decided, one, to double down on gaming. One of the industries that really benefited from the pandemic, streaming services would be a famous example, Netflix and whatnot, was the gaming industry. I mean, the gaming industry right now uh, in the United States from a revenue annual revenue standpoint is larger than professional sports and um, and other streaming services combined in terms of revenue. And so this was Microsoft doubling down on what it already does with the Xbox and with its gaming platform. But the second thing that it's doing here is much more associated with Microsoft's cloud business as well, which is sizable. And Microsoft is looking toward this new territory of, of uh, property ownership and currency circulation, which is this idea of the metaverse, which is not terribly well defined. But essentially, the idea is this, that everything that we are going to be doing or much that we're going to be doing in the future from online meetings to gaming to shopping to uh, to even purchasing property and trading new currencies is all going to happen in sort of the, meta the metaverse, an area where we're not really ever entirely unplugging from the internet all day long. I mean, our lives are going to be as much there, uh, second life, if you will, an older version of this, as it is elsewhere. And that's what Microsoft is also gambling on, that purchasing Blizzard, Activision, is going to put itself in, you know, it's establishing millions of potential metaversians uh, by, by, by buying this company. And so that's like also what Microsoft is doing. I think it says a lot about uh, how much Microsoft wants to be in the metaverse as well. You know, this is a company that has, I think the Wall Street Journal reported like 130 billion in cash on hand. So, hey, 75 billion here. <laughs> it, you know, it, maybe it makes sense. But I know also, you know, you know, this Microsoft has been a leader in, uh, if people are familiar with the ESG score, that's your environmental, social and corporate governance. It's like a social credit score. Um, it, you know, Microsoft has worked hard to you know, make its score so high. It's one of the highest on Wall Street. And they're buying a company right now that, of course, was recently rocked by allegations of widespread sexual harassment, um, you know, workplace misconduct. Uh, and Microsoft is doing all this work. They want to be, uh, you know, have their power coming 100% from renewables by 2025. And their corporate campus, I think now, doesn't it even include a geothermal energy plant or they're building one? And they're buying Activision, which is, of course, a company that with brands like you mentioned, Bill, uh, Call of Duty. These are franchises powered on electricity, carbon intensive servers. I just think this merge, if it's allowed, it's, it's going to take a lot of work um, to bring together. But it shows how much Microsoft wants to be involved in this in this new sphere and in the metaverse. So stop saying that the metaverse is just a, a Mark Zuckerberg thing. You know, your local Amazon and Microsoft, which have, you know, they have all this cloud capacity. They're, um, they're, they're obviously very involved in the idea that we, I think Mike said we're never unplugged. Um, what, I'm curious about that idea. I'm, I'm curious what you all think uh, about about being constantly plugged in. 
I'm I, I was surprised how easy it was to leave Facebook. It was no big deal. But is the metaverse going to be so vital that avoiding that is more like uh, just not having a computer, just something it just almost not an option for, I guess, for uh, for most of us. I just think it's interesting how there's this digital world that's like almost replicating like real, like real, like the real world, quote unquote. And I mean, for me, what, like what comes to mind is like esports, like that um, has grown in such popularity. You know, the the top esports players are celebrities now. These are not. This is not like a little cute like oh these video game players. These are celebrities that make tons of money and. I think it's no surprise to me that Microsoft wants to be part of that because it's clear that the digital space is very much. And then, you know, you got cryptocurrency and NFTs and, you know, it's, it's kind of almost I I can't like read a book or a tweet or anything without seeing something about some entity doing NFTs like art museums and um, any, anything is now, you know, everyone's looking into that. And I think. And it's kind of controversial because it's kind of hard to understand. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about kind of the environmental impact of the of the, those things. And so, um, yeah, I think it's it's not a surprise that there's this whole other digital world. And, yeah, I think we're going to, yeah, it's going to be hard not to be plugged into it or be part of it because it's going to be, it's not just like Facebook where you can deactivate. It's like a world and you're like part of it. So, but do yeah, I, I don't but do I have that, to be? I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I think it's nice. interesting to, I mean, everyone, I think, rightfully poked fun at uh, Meta and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, especially on that video of you know, the virtual uh, meeting uh, with Mark Zuckerberg, which was pretty rudimentary uh, and not really that impressive. But it, everyone did that early on in a lot of things. I mean, I like to remind myself that I famously got in an argument in a newsroom back working for McClatchy many years ago in California about how no one is going to need a camera on their phone. And, and, and obviously I've been proven correct on that. So, so I think that, that this early version of this is not actually where it's going to go. But here's the other thing that I try to remind myself as well, that while the metaverse may not turn out the way we think, and, and you know, NFTs are a good thing, cryptocurrency, are, are these, all these things being sort of blended into this idea, this notion of Web3, uh, this new version of the internet that is evolving in front of us, one of the things I remind myself is, is you don't really need to understand, you know, why it rains to be able to get wet when you go out there. And so some knowledge of what's going on here, even if it is highly speculative, like NFTs and, you know, essentially, which are electronic beanie babies at this point, <laughs> I, I think I think that it is really important to recognize that this is going on, because at some point, the folks who didn't want to go online to register for a hotel room we're forced to, because as you, I think, pointed out, Bill, if it's all moving that direction, uh, we ha at some point we'll be swept along with it. But I would like to counter that point by noting that like um, one thing that I've seen like online is that there is like among like Gen Z, you'd be surprised. Like, it's almost kind of surprising given how native they are to like the digital world, you know, Gen Z is, but they are very adverse to NFTs. Like that was something I was like, very surprised by like like if you follow like any sort of fandom like k-pop or anything um there's this like massive outcry against any sort of you know concept of nft for like you know their favorite k-pop artists or like sports i mean it they're not they're not buying into it and you know and they have and they keep 
you know, they bring up the environmental and voice concerns. So that might also factor into what, you know, this world looks like is whether people will buy into it. So you have, and and they're the next generation. So you have to keep that in mind. Well, since we're talking about whether uh, whether people want to uh, get outside or uh, or stay on their couch or wherever it is that you're that you're plugging in, let's talk about uh, somebody who really wants you to leave your home, which is uh, PCC. Our uh, you know PCC Community Markets, our our local giant food co-op, more than a dozen locations now, and their latest one is in downtown Seattle. It just opened this week. And uh, Mike, even though the the business leaders sometimes will say that downtown is hostile to business because of you know, shoplifting and the harassment of customers, uh, PCC opens up. Why would a supermarket want to be in downtown Seattle right now? Well, that's a good question. I think one reason that the supermarket would want to be in downtown Seattle is it's probably getting a spectacular deal on real estate. Uh, to open up a, that size of a footprint in downtown. Remember that there is a fair bit of releasing of office space that's under existing leases in any number of buildings. The F5 building would be a great example of that, where people are not returning to work, or at least in the same numbers. And so there's a businesses now with stranded, empty uh, space that it wants to release. And so PCC my guess is probably getting a decent deal, but it's also trying to show politically that that it is a return to downtown, which if anyone who's wandered around in downtown Seattle, maybe not as bad now as it was six months ago, it's shocking to see how few people are down there compared to what it was at the height of the SLU, the South Lake Union build out by Amazon and other companies. And remember, Zillow is not even going to refill its you know skyscraper in downtown it's going full remote if you want it it's going to have limited in work uh attendance and so the question about pcc is sort of not really about pcc it's about this larger thing about what is the return to work going to look like and i don't think we really know i know amazon has pushed hard and then gotten a lot of pushback but i talked to recently for a story for geekwire job recruiters and they said 75% of the people that they talk to, the people who recruit into these big tech jobs all over the region, the thousands of jobs that are open right now all over the region, they say that 75% of the people they talk to insist on remote work as being a component, a major component, if not full remote, at least majority remote work as being a component of even accepting a job. And so that is really going to change, I think, the character and the nature of downtown. And are these some of these places going to convert to residences? I mean, that's the good question. Certainly there still is a housing shortage. So maybe that's one possible, you know, uh, silver lining uh, in this downtown return to downtown that I know is going to be a big part of what the new mayor, Bruce Harrell, is going to want to do. I totally agree with that. I think it's, um, I think down, I think every downtown like Seattle or Yakima, I think they're all having that question because I think a lot of these downtowns really leaned into, you know, work and office. Like that's like the primary reason you went downtown or in Seattle's case, tourism, culture. Um, so I think part of it, I, I think actually it makes sense for PCC to open downtown. If, if you're assuming that downtown Seattle is going to develop a community of people who live there as opposed to work there. So I think it, it does already make- has. It already yeah. has. I mean, it's the fastest growing residential neighborhood right. in Seattle over the past, like 80,000 people live in, down, in, in the downtown area. So it's it's a sizable neighborhood as it is. And it's a little okay. bit of a food desert. Right. I mean, there's not a whole lot. There's a, the Whole Foods 
And there's a target that sort of doubles it, but not a whole lot else. So I think you're right. I think PCC also sees an opportunity because those residences are not going away. I wonder yeah, whether and- these new residents are mixing, want to mix, or is it more like I live many, many floors above uh, things I don't like, and I, I don't know, I go down to my, uh, I go down to my parking garage, or I, or I hop into a, an Uber. I, I wonder what kind of residential neighborhood downtown is these days, and, and will be. It's a good question. I mean, when I go, I go downtown pretty regularly. And I have friends who live in downtown and some of the new places down there. It still is. There's not a lot to do in the daytime. It's not so bad in the evening. There's a lot of places that aren't open regularly. It's made a slight comeback, but downtown is not going to resemble what it was. A lot of people in downtown just head into the neighborhoods. They head into Ballard, they head into Fremont, they head into the central district, they head into Capitol Hill. I think downtown is not going to, it was a, it was, it became a region of the city that really bent toward the workaday people, the way in many areas of Manhattan have, right? When you have an additional 200,000 people arriving in downtown every single day, business builds around that. And so Mm -hmm. those people are not coming back. And so I think it's a good question. What is it going to look like? And what is it going to be like if you're a resident in downtown at eight o'clock on a Sunday evening? I mean, are you just going to see tumbleweeds blowing through or are you actually going to see a little bit more vibrant? I do think the waterfront is one of the solutions because they're really doing a lot there. And that is going to be, I think, uh, going to be very heavily used once it gets completed for a lot of the residents uh, in downtown. Yeah, I think the other challenge is is just that a lot of the businesses that are conclusive to the downtown setting in general, like not just Seattle, are businesses that were really highly affected by the pandemic. So restaurants, you know, event venues, like those things are still not back. So that's a- a big factor. And so um, I think as those things come back, maybe they can fill in the gaps in terms of, you know, building that, you know, that space for, you know, people that live downtown. Josh, I want to hear, I want to hear a, a Bremerton point of view on all of this. I just, I want to say, I got a note just now from a listener named Jenny, who says, where's the PCC? So I haven't actually said it's on, it's in the new, the new uh, Rainier Square Tower. It's on the ground floor. This is uh, fourth and Union, b- between un- Union and University, at t- 20,000 square feet. Um, by the way, they got an armed guard there and employees get escorts to, uh, to transit stations. Uh, read about this, mm-hmm. I think, in the Seattle Times. And the store director told the Times uh, regarding crime, uh, shoplifting, the store director said if someone wants a sandwich because they're hungry, he'll probably give it to them. Um, so, um, you know, all, all of that is in the mix. I'm seeing a lot, you know, the, all the online comments like, oh, let the, you know, let the crime begin. They won't last. They won't last two years, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we'll see. I just I haven't heard from Josh, who's in you're in Bremerton, which is um, w- what's the downtown supermarket situation like in Bremerton? Oh, we're very much this pre- predates the pandemic, but we've been a food desert for some some time and in, in Bremerton. And it's I, I think I would I would say I think Seattle in that way uh, of having, um, you know, new residents in this area for PC and for. Uh, for higher income places, but um, for, uh, you know, lower income, I, I think it's a real challenge uh, to bring, you know, good quality groceries into into urban urban centers. It always has been high cost of rent, of course, um, and Bremerton's no exception to that. I, I will give a plug to, we have a, uh, uh, a great little 
co-op, uh, the Kitsap Community Food Co-op that has opened downtown. So you can get some groceries downtown, but uh, for a long time, it's almost like this, um, uh, you know, this mythical <laughs> um, being that people discuss, there will be a grocery store someday in downtown Bremerton and nothing has ever materialized. So, but I, I, I totally relate to that actually in Yakima. Cause I feel like that's, that's, we have that discussion too. We don't, we all see it. Yeah. There's not really any, we don't even have a co-op. We, we, we tried that too here and that did not work out. So um, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, being from a place of like a similar feel like, yeah, it's uh yeah, it is actually pretty amazing to see a downtown grocery store somewhere else. Cause yeah, I don't see that happening here anytime soon. Okay, well, it's hard for Puget Sounders to get to Yakima when the passes are snowed in, and it's hard for <laughs> Seattleites to get to Bremerton when they're canceling the ferry runs. We're going to touch on that uh, when we come back. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we're talking with Mai Huang here and Josh Farley and Mike Lewis, and we will come right back with more Week in Review. We're live streaming the show on Facebook and YouTube. I hope you will. Stay tuned. You're figuring out what happened this week and what it all means here on Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I'm with CrossCut's Eastern Washington reporter, Mai Huang, with GeekWire's contributing editor, Mike Lewis, and Kitsap Sun reporter, Josh Farley, is in Bremerton. Josh, is that because there are no longer ferry boats to Seattle? Pretty, pretty much. No, we, we have service still. Okay. Uh, it's been... Certainly a very challenging time. I, 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 you know, I've never, I hate using unprecedented, but um, it's a pretty broken broken system right now. Uh, when last Friday night, you know, there were people who were relying upon that as their source of transportation to get back home 15 miles across the dark seas of Puget Sound and the, uh, the ferry was canceled. So, you know, you're talking, if you imagine the, the idea of that, you've got hundred plus dollars for a cab that's conservative I think um, or a ho- you guys bring for a hotel um, you know it, it made it makes for a challenging situation when that stuff happens and I'd love to see you know some kind of uh, you know rescue plan for people in those acute emergencies but it also has a chilling effect on you know it's driving down the people that trust the ferries and it's making a whole bunch more of us when we want to go to Seattle to drive around, you know, to, to burn a bunch of gas on already congested freeways to get over, to get over to that side of the water. Do you drive around via Gig Harbor or Kingston, or do you take the Southworth ferry? What's the plan? The Tacoma narrow bridges uh, is the the way to go uh, typically. So uh, for, for Bremerson, but you know, uh, for communities up North and certainly for those, those very ferry dependent communities like Vashon and the San Juans, you know, this is, this, they don't have a choice. So um, it's, it's very, it's, it's troubling. And uh, hopefully the legislature, uh, you know, there's, there's plans to reform and, and do something about it. Yeah. And Mike, this, you have been following this as well, you were saying. Yeah. The, the interesting thing is I started noticing some Twitter chatter, particularly from the folks who are part-time workers on the ferry system. The, part, the ferry system right now in Washington state, there's a variety of unions that represent different aspects of the ferries. And I think that this is where the fight is going to happen in the legislature, but they have the, the part-time workers, apparently there is a uh, regulation that you spend two years on part-time prior to going to full-time. And when that happens, you actually, you reduce the, the available worker pool 
uh, fairly significantly. And I think part of that is probably job protection standards by existing ferry workers and, and management. But you also have a situation where you can't onboard full-time workers as quickly as you would like. And I think that that has some role to play uh, in what's going on here, not just you know people being out sick with COVID or suspecting that they might or testing positive or whatnot. I'm sure that has a dramatic effect as well. But then you also have this other thing where you can't onboard people very quickly. There are lots of open jobs right now in the ferry system. And I think that that is, I think it's going to end up as a tussle between the governor, the legislature, and and some of the public employee unions uh, to resolve how they onboard employees and get hired up in a situation where clearly they don't have enough people working in the ferry system right now. Josh, how do you think that'll resolve? Well, I I think uh, Mike hit it on the head. I mean, I I have a a Twitter pal, uh, Elliot Smith, who lives in Suquamish, and he uh, is commuting right now to Texas for a job uh, on the Gulf Coast as a merchant mariner. He wants to work for the ferries, but this two year, it's about two years or so of part-time work. You could be called to the San Juans one day to bash on the next, get no no work um, after that. So they're they're going to have to, it seems like they're going to have to fix. Of course, you know, the, the, the legislature, its role is really driving policy and funding, funding things. So what's the, what's the ask? And what I'm hearing right now is, you know, a boost of, uh, you know, 10, 20, $25 million, something like that um, to try and modernize, make more flexible the dispatch system and, and, and sweetening the deal for, you know, maybe go to a, a, a paid on call system, maybe help merchant mariners uh, to have the confidence of knowing that they're going to get the job of, um, you know, having some help up front rather than, you know, the pay on the back end, if that makes sense. Uh, and, and so I think some of that is, is coming and being discussed in Olympia, uh, but it will, as Mike points out, I think it will be up to the ferry system um, and, uh, and the unions to, to you know, uh, make, that, make that also work so it's easier to hire. It's just we don't live in an age where, you know, these jobs were really, really coveted, and, you know, and, and rare. And right now, merchant mariners have a lot of choices. And so I, I think that's part of it. Um, the other part is we're going to need billions more in new boats. You know, they don't, they're, they're short on, on boats. So it always seems like we're chasing that, that tail, you know, of making sure we, we have, we have the necessary number of vessels in the fleet. And that's, that's going to be, um, uh, you know, a, a huge expenditure. Uh, you know, we happen to be in a time though when an infrastructure package was just passed federally, so maybe there's money there. Um, and uh, from what I'm hearing from Olympia, you know, this is not the worst legislative session they've ever gone into as far as revenues go. It's it's pretty robust. So um, maybe they, may, I think they're, I think they're going to find a, a way to make that work. My, there is a big state ferry boat called Yakima, but you're actually in Yakima. Do you have any uh, experience, questions, observations before we roll on? Here? Yeah, I just, I think the ferry system is like any, a lot of other um, industries, just it was an aging industry. Like, I, I mean, um, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, like the, the, the age of the ferry workers um, skewed older to begin with. And um, I feel like that was a pre-pandemic problem that was not resolved and the pandemic kind of just exasperated um, that. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, like how often in schools do the kids hear like, hey, you should work for the ferries? I don't 
know what kind of recruiting efforts there's been by the Washington State Ferries because when I think about it, I, I don't see any sort of like advertising or anything that says, hey, come work for us, but um, maybe I missed it. I mean, I'm not the target audience, obviously, for that, but I, I haven't seen any recruiting. So I don't, I, I guess I would like to hear about whether there has been efforts to recruit, you know, the next generation, because I feel like it's like the problem was, is that it was already older and there's people on their way out already anyway. And the pandemic just kind of forced, forced the issue a little bit. Yeah, you hit it on the head, My, I, I know, especially ferry captains, I think, have really been uh, retiring uh, very frequently, even pre-pandemic. And I do know that the ferry system has been uh, really pushing the outreach effort to really plant the seeds, you know, for a, a generation of, of new workers. But that's going to take time. You know, yeah. that's going to take time to develop. Well, and also, I mean, like we said earlier, when you are getting new people, but they spend two years on part-time work and they're getting dragged all over the state, for moderate pay, and then the economy changes and suddenly they have other options, well, they're gonna take other options where they can get full-time work. It's a shame. I think I have a real soft spot for the ferry system. I mean, I got here 20 years ago and I always look forward to getting on the ferry. I mean, I know people maybe don't feel the same way I do, but my first time on a ferry in Washington state, there was a pot of orcas off off, one of the sides of the ferry. And I was like, this is stunning. I'm on mass transit looking at this, right? And and so I actually root for the ferry system. And I think that is one of those things that I would love to see them do a better job recruiting and get younger workforce. But I really would like to see them be able to bring in people who genuinely are enthusiastic about working there. And they're not doing that very well right now. I also have a fondness for the ferries. Um, I uh, my honeymoon was to the San Juan. So I definitely have used the ferries. And um, yeah, and you it's so it's so fun to be like outside and looking at, you know, Puget Sound or looking at, you know, San Juan's and just the views are great. And yeah, as someone that came from another, you know, from the eastern part of the country, you know, to here, like, it was just like, just mind blowing to know like, oh, hey, I can travel by a boat, you know, and so I also feel fondness. And yeah, I also am rooting for them to succeed. I am a and former I, Vashon Island resident. I too have fairy love. Yes, Josh. If, if, we're, if we're doing if we're doing this, <laughs> I propose to my wife Rosemary on a ferry on the Washington oh, wow. There you go. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> so there, there you go. But yeah, and I, I think um, just to round out the conversation, you know, again, it, 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 the other big problem here is it costs a bazillion dollars to live in Puget Sound, and I think that needs to be said too. I've heard mm-hmm. from people saying, you know, it, they. They, rec- they could be recruited from around the country, but it's just we live in such an expensive area now. Yeah, too, true. Hey, I, I mentioned Yakima, Maya. I wanted to hear uh, quickly about the this lawsuit. You know, we're all following the voting rights debate in D.C., but we've got it here in Washington. A coalition of Yakima Valley voters this week sued, saying that their new legislative district was redrawn purposely to dilute Latino voter strength. What is their argument? So, yeah. So um, as uh, many people know, um, we are going through a redistricting process or we had been going through a redistricting process that involves, you know, redrawing all the congressional and legislative districts um, based on, you know, census data. And um, the 15th legislative district um, was among the um, districts created. And the argument they're using is that even though technically and that there is a majority percentage and what we're talking about here is 50.02% 50.02% Latino <laughs> district mm-hmm. um, that the way it was drawn that it included um, 
Latino voting areas that were less politically active, and it excluded other uh, Latino areas that were more politically active. So hence, if you put a district with an area like Othello that doesn't have the voter turnout of a place like Toppenish, which has a higher voter turnout, that district is going to have a less less turnout. And so the concern is, is that that district is going to be more heavy towards the white voters who are more likely to vote for different candidates than Latino um, voters. Well, is the state saying, well, look, we did meet the, the, we barely met the standard. That's the law. And, and, and the solution by that logic is that the solution to Latino representation is turning out and voting in, in equal or higher numbers than non-Latinos. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, they haven't, they haven't commented, the, com- the commission, that is, they haven't commented on the lawsuit. They said, it's, you know, one of them said, you know, it's ongoing litigation. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, they're going to use the argument. But I think, you know, I think one thing that's in the favor of this group of Latino voters is that there's already been other cases um, where it's been shown that um, it that the system has been designed to dilute, you know, the power of Latino voters. You saw this with um, a, a different case a couple of years ago in the city of Yakima where they said that the way that um, the city council is elected um, really was not conclusive to, um, you know, bringing in Latino candidates. So it resulted in the ruling resulted in um, a district based election system. And since then, we have elected several Latino candidates in the Yakima City Council. And then more recently, you had another case. This was at the state level um, that was settled regarding Yakima County. And again, um, it involved their commissioner races and how the commissioner races work is that they're district based at the primary level, but they're elected at the at large at the city or countywide level um, and during the general election and the settlement um, changes that as well, which makes it a district based general election. And as a result, all the county commissioners in Yakima County will have to run for election again. And one of them just got elected last fall. So he's going to serve for one year and have to run for re-election. So, um, you know, they've done a good job documented a history of, you know, um, you know, voter discrimination, disenfranchisement. So it's hard to say how this suit will go, but there is there are other cases that they can kind of lean into. Very interesting. And Josh, you were telling me that Bremerton is a cracked district. What did you mean by that? Well, so, you know, this is going back a, a ways, but essentially, uh, Bremerton's divided into three legislative districts, has been. I know it's been frustrating for folks who was really, really hoping to change that this time. You know, Bremerton is relatively same size, uh, a little smaller than Olympia, but Olympia has its own district, by it, for example. Um, Bremerton's drawn essentially a district south to towards Gig Harbor, one towards Mason County, and one towards Paulsbow and Bainbridge Island, and yet um, basically the, the, the issue is that uh, we end up electing people from those communities on the on those edges uh, instead of from Bremerton. So we do have I we do have elected representatives from from Bremerton now. Um, but for a while there, it was it was pretty much, um, you know, pulled from from those other communities. And, you know, it's important for for communities to have that voice that Maya is talking about. Uh, and um, and so I'm, I, I'm sure this is very difficult to draw a, draw a map in a, in a way that, that pleases everyone. You're never going to please everybody. But um, Bremerton has been fractured for uh, and will continue to be for the next decade now. It looks- yeah, 
I think adding to that, I mean, yeah, definitely it's difficult to draw a map. I think the frustration of this, um, these plaintiffs is that they presented um, not just them, but, um, you know, League of Women Voters, the UCLA Voting Rights Project, they all brought in, you know, proposed maps um, that would have increased the percentage, um, would have been, would have put together um, more politically cohesive voting, um, Latino voter areas. Um, and that was just not factored in, um, in the final map. And that's, that's also a frustration of this, of this group of plaintiffs as well. I think there's another problem with the with the commission that does redistricting that that sort of goes into its DNA. I mean, if you look at the history of redistricting in Washington, it's <laughs> it's been assigned to a variety of different people from a University of Washington geologist um, to a uh, to a former U.S. Uh, rather state uh, U.S. Senator Slade Gordon was heavily involved in that former governor Dan Evans kind of made his political hay before he was governor on redistricting in the 1960s, 1970s. And in 1982 is when they came up with this commission. And it's one of seven states in the country that does it via commission. And that sounds good because it's a bipartisan commission. Here's the problem, though, in the, in the structure is that bipartisan was thought to be um, universally liked. And in some ways it was, except bipartisan doesn't mean diverse, right? Mm-hmm. Bipartisan simply means Two political parties are, are cutting up, two political parties comprised largely of the same type of people are cutting up the state for their own needs. And this has been the problem that sort of, and really it does like go down to the DNA. This was not presumed that we were going to worry that much about people of color and worry about other communities like that. We were going to worry about two primary political parties. And this is the problem that they're confronting now in a lot of places, uh, chief among them, Yakima. Right. And I think you, it's worth noting, too, that this is also not the only lawsuit <laughs> um, right. related to this redistricting process. Um, it's, a, it's a slightly different topic, but um, the, uh, there's also been lawsuits because of how uh, regarding open uh, open meetings, because, you know, the, you know, there's debate whether the um, re- commission have been fully transparent um, in terms of, you know, showing the process. And when I was talking to um, one of the plaintiffs, um, you know, I kind of mentioned like, okay, well, you know, is this, is this, is, did this also factor? And, you know, he did say that, you know, his group felt like they had no clue where the commission was going and they felt very much kind of left in the dark at times. And so I think, you know, that also might contribute to how this lawsuit going is that there was already, there was already problems with the transparency of the commission and questions about, you know, whether they were open to begin with. So that might factor into things as well. That's CrossCut's Eastern Washington reporter, Mai Wong. We've got GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis here with Kitsap Sun reporter Josh Farley. And we're live streaming Week in Review. We're figuring out what happened this week and what it all means. You can, you're listening, and uh, perhaps you can watch the show, too, if you want to join us. Search for KUOW Public Radio on uh, YouTube or on Facebook. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to give you a reason to smile to close out the show. I'll tell you one thing we're going to do is we are going to attack an invasive species by eating it when we come back. We're going to take a short break, come back to Week in Review. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. This week, KUOW's John Ryan told us that Governor Inslee has authorized emergency actions to fight an infestation of green crabs. 
The European green crab is considered one of the world's most destructive invasive species. The invasive crab's population skyrocketed last year in a saltwater pond on Lummi Bay near Bellingham. More than 85,000 of the little green invaders were trapped there. The bad news is they eat our local crabs and young salmon. The good news is they're delicious. The East Coast has been dealing with this for years, and a fisheries expert there named Gabriella Brat told New Hampshire Public Radio that New Hampshire chefs are very interested in food that is locally harvested. Does that sound familiar? So she goes to those chefs and says, Hey, if we can put these on our on your plates or on your menus, uh, you're not only being eco-groovy, but you're also... Uh, helping to promote another seafood product that would be environmentally friendly. And what are Washington chefs if not eco-groovy? Every summer, New Hampshire restaurants have something called Green Crab Week. And I don't know why we can't have Green Crab Week right here. Uh, So that kind of made me smile uh, this week. Anything uh, giving you something to smile about, team? I love that, Bill. I think that's that's great Uh, that, um, you know, I'm used to pulling... English ivy over on as as everyone is I'm sure yes. but I can't eat it I can't take it home and boil it or put it in you know put it in something to make it ap- appetizing so I'll look for green crab next time I'm out and about very good you got to but it's got to be soft shell by the way they're too small to <laughs> if you picked it from the hard shell there's not enough meat to be worth it but soft shell you can eat the whole thing so that's your that's your revenge on the European invader and as they say revenge is a dish best served pan fried with butter. Uh, Maya, anything uh, made you smile this week? So um, this is hard to believe um, because it probably feels like we just went through an Olympics, but uh, two weeks from yesterday or today, um, Winter Olympics starts. Right. And uh, yeah, and I'm a big figure skating fan, so I'm excited. It'd be fun. Awesome. Or, Figure skating. All the kind of chaotic <laughs> because of COVID, but yeah, hopefully everything yeah. goes well. Yeah, China stopped selling tickets to Chinese people for their own Olympics. Uh, Mike, anything uh, anything you want to leave us with as we say goodbye? You're on mute, Mike. So I'll smile when I can hear you. Hey, There we go. Yeah. Sorry about that. It's okay. Um, A few seconds I was here. coughing earlier. In oh. fact, the reason I was coughing earlier is what, weirdly enough, made me smile. I actually... Uh, became positive with coronavirus uh, about a week and a half ago. Wow. Uh, and, and I have actually had um, been vaccinated and boosted as well mm. and went through it feeling like it was, you know, a not even the worst cold I'd ever had. So I guess in a weird way, if you want to look for a silver lining, and now I guess that makes me sort of triple immu- immunized, mm-hmm. uh, in a, in, in a weird way, that kind of, it was kind of nice because it feels like it's going to visit all of us at some point. And it was nice to, to pass through it. And my girlfriend did as well and a few people on staff at the other business. And, and everyone came out of it in good shape. And that's actually a testament to how good folks were, especially in our area. We're so lucky about the spread of the dissemination of vaccinations. I mean, it didn't start off good, but yeah. it got a lot better over time. And that absolutely it's a reason to smile right there. Glad to hear it. GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis <laughs> there and Kitsap Sun reporter Josh Farley and CrossCuts Eastern Washington reporter Mai Wong. I'm smiling because you're all here and you helped us figure out the week gone by. Thank you so much, everybody. Really appreciate it.
And good to have you along with us, too. The show is produced by Kevin Kniestead with social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Thank you for listening. I'm Bill Radke, and we'll do this again a week from today uh, on Week in Review. By the way, it looks like the pandemic might be ending because Netflix and Peloton stocks are tanking. So <laughs> maybe that's good <laughs> news, go. too. We'll see. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Talk to you next week.